Hello once again ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another really good revision history podcast with me Mr Hutchison uh, just doing this little introduction to let you guys know that this one is a little different okay this is an extra long podcast recorded live in front of a, a, an audience of students um, which I did recently as a, as a giant revision session for uh, paper one so this goes through the entirety of the medicine part of the course um, 1250 to present day um, I don't go through the World War One part of that exam I will do that um, in another podcast soon um, but this is Edexcel History GCSE uh, Paper 1 Medicine 1250 to present day um, and I hope you find it useful okay so ladies and gentlemen I'm going to start by talking through your Paper 1 exam so here we go then obviously it's medicine through time and world war one medicine as a separate case study six questions in total your first part when you open the paper will be your world war one medicine with your sources possibly miss beeman always suggests that you look at the sources first you annotate them you know you look at the provenance i'm not going to spend too much time here because we did that in a recent session but your first question will be described uh, two features of that's just general knowledge remember that is a feature so a piece of of knowledge a piece of history okay with an additional bit of information for two marks the same again for four marks nice and easy nice little warm-up there as well historical evidence such as dates and names would be preferable you know not the be all be all and end all though of your history remember you're better off focusing on uh, what historical events what discoveries uh, improved and what the impact is rather than just you know rote learning names and dates okay you get more points overall for your AO2 which is your explanation than you do just for knowledge which is AO1 in saying that though on this described question it's just AO1 just pure knowledge then you get your uh, whoops then you get your 2A question, how useful are the sources? Remember, nature, origin, purpose, and own knowledge. You have to do both for both. You have to ask yourself whether the sources are reliable, focusing on the provenance, who wrote them, when it was written, and the type of source. Okay, Is it written to persuade? Is it written to inform? Depending upon what it is will drastically affect how reliable it is. Yeah, If it's an, a painting... Uh, for an advert for cigarettes, which is one that we've used here, that's going to be massively unreliable because it's trying to persuade people to join the war effort and buy cigarettes. Okay, so it's going to be a hugely glamorized and romanticized version of the war. That doesn't mean that it's not useful, though, okay, because it can tell us why so many people signed up to go. So be careful. Usefulness is uh, with regards to your history and reliability is regards to who wrote it. You must do both, okay? times twice for your eight marks okay your 2b question is a little bit uh, different this is the how would you follow up a source type question you get four sentence starters here i'm going to skip through on the board there you go at the bottom there okay only four marks but you need to know how to answer it correctly to get four marks here so there's a detail in the source i would follow up you have to use a quote i don't know why i'm doing the air a quote if it's um, a written source if it is a picture source you very briefly describe a specific part of that source that you would use it has to be relevant to the question okay I marked these in the summer I did have students talking about oh what question would I ask oh I'd ask the soldier what type of ammunition he uses 
It's not relevant to medicine, okay? It's got to be relevant to the question in order to uh, pick up the mark there. Question I would ask, any question that furthers the inquiry must be written as a question. We'll get you a mark there. Type of source I could use, any other type of source, but you must be specific. A diary from a nurse on the Western Front in 1917. That will get you the mark. Use a date as well. Okay, uh, obviously it can't be the same type of source as you've got. It's got to be something different. So medical records, um, newspaper article, maybe diaries are always good, of course, whatever. Okay, and then how might this answer my question? You've just got to justify uh, how that enhances your knowledge. If all else fails, just say this will give me a greater insight into. You can literally learn that phrase. This will give me a greater insight into. And that, that would probably get you the mark there as well. Moving on to the medicine part, which is our focus today, of course, your first four mark there is explain one way in which uh, treatments, preventions, or beliefs were similar in this period compared to this period or different. You've got to make sure you look at that word. Preventions, treatments, and, and beliefs are all different, of course. Four humours does bridge kind of all three of them, but for other things, okay, for other, like spontaneous de generation, of course, that's not going to help with treatment. That would be a belief, wouldn't it, for example? So make sure you focus in on that word, okay? And you also got to use a comparative. Whereas, on the other hand, okay, something that compares the two time periods. Only four marks, so just naming a belief and then briefly saying what it is, okay, will get you two marks. Whereas, there was this belief in this period, naming belief will get you three marks. Briefly describing what it is, that's your four marks, nice and easy, all knowledge-based, but you must compare the two periods. And of course, what you're talking about must be relevant to that particular time period. Okay. Then you get the 12 marker, which I'm going to talk about in more detail in a bit. You get half your marks for historical knowledge here, half your marks for explanation. Again, when I mean explanation, AO2, I mean focusing on importance and impact. What happened as a result? Who else did it influence? What other, what other events happened as the result of that work, etc.? Okay, that is as important as your historical knowledge. Okay, do use the peel paragraph structure that we've put in place. There is a copy of it on Moodle. Most of you have been given it by your class teachers as well. That just helps you to focus in on explanation. I've been marking some uh, of these recently. Some of you have been good enough to give me some as part of your revision. They've been excellent. They've been absolutely excellent. Most of the ones I've marked have hit full marks recently on these 12 markers. And that is purely because your knowledge is coming, but also you've, you're finally coming to grips with explanation is as important as just what I call regurgitating the history. It's really important. With the 16 mark, oh, sorry, 12 marker, we say three paragraphs, okay, three paragraphs, three bits of history. You're given two stimulus points, two bullet points, okay? You've got to do a third one. You've got to use three uh, historical um, events or people, three bits of history, if you like. You don't have to use the two that you're given, okay? You can use three totally different ones, as long as they're relevant to the question. That's absolutely fine. Or you do the two that are given to you and an extra one. The 16 marker is quite similar, actually. The only difference is it's a how far do you agree with the statement type thing. Um, you get more marks here for AO2 than you do for AO1. That means it's your ability to explain and evaluate uh, the importance of the events or the history. You get more points for that than just telling me what happened and the dates. So the reason I'm going so crazy about this or, or making such a big deal out of it is because during your revision, if you're revising Vesalius, for example, it's not enough to just know what he did, okay? Okay, you need to know what, who he influenced. 
was his impact, you know, did he have any impact? Was it a short-term impact? Did people, you know, take on his methods and his, uh, the changes that he made immediately? Or did it take a while to seep in? Those are the kind of things that you're going to get more points for here. Remember with a, um, a how far, very similar to the 12 marker, three paragraphs. The only difference is you have to answer the question directly in the first sentence because you get points for your judgment. So I agree, I disagree, I agree to some extent. And you need to do a sort of on the other hand paragraph as your third one just to show some balance and a conclusion now guys that's 16 marks okay that is a hefty part of your paper that's the last one you come across do not make the mistake of of, of running out of time you can't afford to do that all right you could ace the rest of the paper run out of time completely not answer that and your grade will be drastically affected you need to make sure that you leave yourself sufficient time to do that half an hour probably all right, or 25 minutes, something like that, to give yourself ample opportunity to answer that properly. You will get a choice of that question as well. Don't make the mistake of answering both. Students have done it. You won't be able to. Do read both questions carefully before you select which one you're going to do. Okay, so yes, there you go. So just to show the importance then, for example, I'm just going to give you some examples there. So the Black Death, I'm, I'm going to go through through what the Black Death was and what happened later on during this session. But, you know, the importance part, your AO2, it's not just what happened. The importance part would be, you know, it shows the power of the church. It shows a lack of understanding in beliefs and what caused disease. That's your AO2. There are your explanations. Just two sentences, three sentences like that are going to drastically improve your grades. That is the difference between a decent history student his, uh, and, and an excellent one. All right. It's the ability to explain impact importance. I know I've said that five times already. I'm probably going to say at least 15 more during this session. And that's because it's worth so many points. So it's very, very important that you do that. There's some other examples on the board there, look, for example. So Vesalius, 1543, he, he produced his uh, Fabrica, Fabrica of the Human Body. OK, so again, yep, that, that mapped, you know, what the body looked like, the muscle structure, the bones. It was an accurate sort of depiction of what the body looked like, which surgeons could use, okay, and, and, and helped, um, you know, with regards to knowledge, with regards to the human body. But in terms of import, that's all AO1. In terms of importance, it challenges how dissections were done, okay, leads to a greater understanding of how the body works. A simple phrase like that will get you more marks. You know that's what it does. That's obvious, Okay, that a book mapping out the human body leads to a greater understanding. That is absolutely obvious. You've still got to write it. Okay, you've still got to write it. Assume that the person reading it isn't a historian, isn't a histor uh, history teacher. They know nothing. Okay, assume that. All right. Another thing leads to a greater understanding of how the body works. Influences other people such as William Harvey. So influences the work of. Always a great piece of AO2. Leads to the questioning of Galen, finally. Okay, it proves him in incorrect. Leads to greater questioning of Galen as well. Nothing changes initially, though. Okay, Vesalius, nothing changes straight away. Life expectancy doesn't improve because of his work. Okay, but it does lead to changes over time. You could link all of the surgical um, improvements to Vesalius. And Harvey, for example. So can you see what I'm driving at here? It's about impact. It's about influence. It's about importance as much as just your knowledge. All right? And that's what I'm going to try and focus on 
as I go forward. Are we absolutely clear on what the exam's gonna look like and uh, how best to tackle this? Good, okay, excellent. So, onto the history then, focusing on medieval ideas about what caused disease. So, as an overview, these were the beliefs of what people caused disease during the medieval period. Now, bearing in mind, of course, that our course starts in 1250. Your Richard and John course ends in 1216, not long before. It's quite nice that there's a bit of a crossover because all of that stuff that you learn about the importance of the church during medieval times, the importance of the priest in people's lives, yep, a church in every village, etc., etc., the church owning lots of land, having lots of power, the Pope being all-powerful, able to call crusades, that's still true in 1250 all right the importance of the church is very important for medicine as well because it has a direct effect on medical progress it's one of the most important features of medieval medicine it's one of possibly one of the reasons why medical progression ceases to go as far as it could have during the period because the church held it back so you use that knowledge use that knowledge from your other course here okay ideas about what caused disease god's punishment is by far and away the most dominant one remember everyone was fervently religious okay by 1250 there are no jews in england by the way they've all been kicked out by edward the first so everyone's catholic there are good catholics and bad catholics that's absolutely true but they all believed they all believed in god so disease was blamed God's punishment. That was the reason for it. Even things like bad air, miasma, which does start to appear during the medieval times, by the way, it's still linked to God, though, because it's God that's sending the miasma. Movement of the planets. Yep. In 1348, when the, when the, um, the Great Plague, sorry, the, the Black Death hits, um, there's strange movements in the sky beforehand that are recorded, so they link the two of them. But they still, of course, suggest that it's God that's doing that. So even though there are different beliefs, miasma, movement of the planets, astrology, all those types of things, they still link them back to God. Four humours, of course, being practised. I'm going to go through that in a minute. But the most important thing here, again, is the church. It's the church that controls education of doctors. It's the church that ran hospitals. It's the church that controls medical knowledge and medical thinking. It's the church that copies books out and distributes them and educates people to read and write. So the church is all-powerful when it comes to the distribution of knowledge. Now, the church censors any information that it doesn't agree with. Anything that is anti-Catholic, anti-Christian, anti-God does not move forward, does not get produced. We don't know if there were medical books produced in the medieval times uh, challenging Galen. We don't know because they didn't survive, because the church wouldn't have copied them. Okay, probably would have destroyed them had they found them. And of course, people did directly get into trouble for questioning God. So for that reason, the church perpetuates or furthers the knowledge that it agrees, agrees with and censors and gets rid of the knowledge that it doesn't agree with. So with that, that and medicine is a big, a big part of this. Okay? Um, the church believes in sticking to tradition. And the church, in particular, with regards to medicine, believes in sticking to the traditional ideas of Galen and Hippocrates, who are, of course, ancient doctors. So the four humours, then, don't forget, although you're pretty comfortable with this by now, but it's to do with blood, back, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm, that the body is made up of these four different humours, and that there's an imbalance of these things causes people to be ill. It was very popular for a number of reasons. Of course, it was 
put together by Hippocrates. It was further and improved upon by Galen. It was popular for a number of reasons. Firstly, Galen wrote in one of his books that the body is so perfect it must have been created by a being. Okay, when the church gets hold of that centuries later, they're, oh, he's talking about God. So he agrees with what we think. And so because of that, Galen's ideas are popular with the church. Um, and also, the four humours is popular with doctors because it can be used to treat anything. Okay, doesn't matter what illness it is, it can come down to the four humours. So it's popular and it kind of makes sense to medieval people. In the sort of ancient world, this was a huge step forward, folks, where the focus, okay, there might have been some herbal, herbal remedies, but the focus was on supernatural beliefs. If you're ill, you need to pray harder to gods or to spirits to stop yourself from getting ill. This was one of the first examples of a doctor looking at the human body. So this is a massive step forward in ancient times, but by the time we get to 1250, it's a victim of its own success. It's so popular that doctors don't move forward. And then, of course, you've got the church trying to stop any movement forward anyway. So it becomes a problem. What is regression in, med in, the, ancient, in the ancient world becomes regression, okay, or stagnation in medieval times. Okay. It is, of course, linked as well to the four elements, so air, fire, earth, and water. It's also linked to um, the calendar as well. So, you know, treatments may differ depending on the time of year or depending on when you were born. Okay? So, you might have the same disease as the person next to you, but a medieval doctor might treat you differently using the four humours because you were born in a different month. Okay? It's not until Thomas Sydenham that that really begins to change. Well, that's one of the things he changed. Okay? Smashing through. Um, Galen as well, very popular because he wrote things down. Okay, in his books, you've also got the, the Hippocratic Collection as well. Um, as I say, for his day, all right, uh, born in AD 129, um, massive strides forward. Okay? 1,500 years later or so, okay, he's still being practised. So that, you could argue, is a regression. All right? So Hippocrates died looking uh, 370 BC. Galen died in 210 AD. All right? A 1,000 years later, our course starts. They are still being practised. Get your heads around that for a minute. We're in the year 2019. Can you imagine if medical progress had gone nowhere for a 1,000 years? That's before the course starts. Okay? Imagine that. That's what had happened between 210 AD and 1250. There had been some progress, but very little. And that's because of the church and because of the popularity and success of Galen. Okay? So despite the fact it was a thousand years ago or thereabouts, their theories are still being used. Not many people question their methods in all that time. Both were responsible for amazing progress, but now their success was responsible for regression. Gay and Hippocrates were responsible for many people looking for more rational causes, okay, but this regressed during medieval times when most people, now Christian, believed that God was the cause. And what the church said, people believed. When the church champions and forwards and pushes forward the idea of Gay and Hippocrates, people listen and they accept it and they don't question it. And if they do question it, they could get into trouble. So the church actively stops progress here. All right? Other beliefs. Okay? Illness was extremely common 
In medieval times, most people struggled to live past sort of 30, 40 years old. So me, I'm knocking on death's door. You're all middle-aged in medieval times. Get your heads around that. Okay, that was often due to famine and malnutrition, so not eating very well, diet, things like that. Okay, um, lack of scientific knowledge as well meant that the church used religion to answer all questions about creation, everything, but of course, medical progress as well. All right, so regression. Okay, regression, stagnation. They're the two sort of phrases, I suppose, that typify or characterize the medieval period when it comes to... Um, medieval medicine, all right? Uh, as I mentioned before, even astrology, movement of the planet's miasma was all linked back to God. Yes, you've got these theories popping up about what causes disease, particularly after 1348, when the Black Death is so horrific, okay, that um, they start looking for other explanations. It's so bad, they, they, they don't know what to do. Panic sets in, they start looking for other explanations. So they start looking at miasma, astrology, spirits again, all kinds of weird things like that. Uh, on the continent, other people poisoning wells and causing it, like Jews were often blamed for it. Not in England, because they weren't here in England by that point, but on the continent they would have been. Okay, um, but they were linked to God. Or the church repressed it. With regards to astrology, astrology in particular, the church frowned upon that. They frowned upon it, okay, because it's taking the focus away from God. It's taking the excuse away from prayer, things like that. When, during the Black Death, you get flagellation, so people that travel the country punishing themselves by whipping themselves, going bare feet, not wearing many clothes, all those types of things. It was like a movement. They thought that if they punished themselves, God wouldn't punish them, wouldn't have to punish them, you know. So it might stop the Black Death. The church frowned upon that. The church was not in support of flagellation, okay, because it was this sort of unorganized thing separate out of the church. So just be careful on how you phrase things. Yes, miasma appears. Yes, it is the belief that smells cause disease, okay. Um, it becomes popular in medieval times. And don't forget, this is the dominant theory about what causes disease right up until 1861. So pretty much during the entire course, this is the dominant theory. Okay, in fact, this becomes so accepted that it also causes stagnation. Okay, for example, John Snow. All right, and his work uh, in London in the 1850s um, isn't accepted even though he proves beyond reasonable doubt that cholera is waterborne because miasma is so ingrained as a belief that people just don't listen to him, all right? So another example of somebody that did great work but whose impact is very little initially, okay? That's because miasma becomes the dominant theory. And look, there's quite a bit of um, logic behind this, okay? Often where there's disease, there's dirt. Often where there's dirt, there's bad smells. So it makes sense. Okay, if you've got no proof of germs or what caused disease, don't have the knowledge we have today, you make that connection, don't you, between dirt or bad smells and disease. So there is a logic here. It does make sense. Bad smells cause disease. And this, as I say, is the dominant theory up until 1861. But in medieval times, unlike later on, this was mainly linked to God. God sends the bad miasmas to, to punish people for their sins. Okay. There we go. Um, skip through that. Don't forget the church controls all medical thinking. If you disagreed with the church in medieval times, you could actually put, be put in serious trouble. 
jail, or maybe even executed in, in some places, in the worst sort of scenarios. Okay? The church liked Galen's ideas. In one of his books, he wrote, the body is so uh, perfect, it must have been created by... Uh, it must have been created. The church took that to mean God hundreds of years later, and therefore uh, continued to practice or continued to push forward his theories. Remember, the churches also controlled universities. They controlled education of doctors. All right? So they're the ones funding it. They're the ones paying for it. They're the ones building the universities. So if you're going to be a physician, you've got to go to university, you've got to become part of the guild, you're going to study Galen. That's all you're taught. All right? So, again, an example of the church holding things back. Questioning or disagreeing with Galen was the same as questioning or disagreeing with God, which could get you into serious trouble with the church. Okay? Stops medical progress. The church is like a buffer, a barrier for moving things forward because of the religious doctrine. And there's an example for your AO1. A man by the name of Henry de Mondeville. This is a French surgeon who criticised Galen and Hippocrates. He did continue to practice four humours, but he was openly critical. He called them old dogs whose ideas should be put down. And he wrote it in one of his books. Big mistake. He began to worry about what would happen to him. He began to get wind of the fact the church might um, do something to him if he continues to criticise Galen and Hippocrates. Okay? So, um, he begins to lose patience. He begins to lose patience coming to him because the church is sort of suggesting that he's incorrect. And so, he stops questioning Galen. He's not getting any money. He's not getting any patience. So he goes back to practicing Galen and Hippocrates, even though he started criticising them. You've also got an English example as well. Roger Bacon, English medieval surgeon. He was jailed for questioning Galen by the church. So people did try, and they were actively stopped by the church. Two good examples there for your AO1. You'd only need a sentence in an answer about the church, about one of these two, to get some good AO1 points there. All right? Okay. Don't forget as well the church responsible for copying books. This was done by monks. By hand. Get your head around that for a moment. By hand. That made books rare, extremely expensive, and um, obviously the monks would only copy things that they agreed with. So they'd only copy things that you know, went with their ideas about God and the church. And therefore, Galen and Pocties may have been some of those works. Any other thinking about medicine just would have got repressed. Okay? Don't forget the church also banned dissection. Banned dissection. Dissection is when you cut open the body and look inside to figure out how it works. That makes sense, right? Makes sense. Some of you may have even done bits of that in, in science. If you don't, I think you do it at A level, even here. The church banned it. Not allowed. Until 1404, when the first public dissection takes place. Very different from the sort of scientific method that we have today. But the church lifts its ban. Now look, that would be excellent AO1. Because often we consider the, the medieval times to end around 1500. Some people say 1400. There's no exact date. Okay, it's not like they went to bed one day and woke up the next day. And went, oh, it's the Renaissance now. It doesn't work like that. Okay, it's a gradual transition. But you could argue 
if you were talking, if you were, if you had a question about the church, the importance of the church for medicine, 12 mark question, what a great sort of part of your, you had to be saying, well, yeah, the church repressed medical progress in this way, this way, and this way, including dissection, until 1404, when dissection all of a sudden became allowed, public dissection. That would be spot on. Great knowledge. Okay. Um, don't forget Galen was hugely incorrect about the body. For all the good he did, okay, in sort of 120, 130 AD, um, he was wrong. He wasn't allowed to dissect either, but he wrote in his books as if he had. Some of the mistakes he made was he said that the jawbone was in two pieces. He also said that one um, kidney is above the other. It's not true in humans. It's true in apes. So we think he must have dissected apes and just wrote as if they were humans. Okay? So he made some huge mistakes that continued to be believed until um, the Renaissance. Okay? There you go. Dissection banned until 1404. Not regularly done, though, until the 1450s. This was right at the end of the medieval period. Okay? And even then, it was not, not done by scientists. It wasn't even done by physicians. <coughs> it would have been carried out in public. It would have been done by other students or barber surgeons, who, of course, would have had um, sort of um, rudimentary training, not, not the fantastic, not, you know, specialist training that physicians would have got. Okay? Um, the professor or the physician would be very, in a position very similar to what I'm doing today. He stood in front of a crowd, reading from Galen, describing how the body should look. Okay? If, if the barber surgeons, as they're cutting the body, discovered any inaccuracies between Galen and the body in front of them, which they must have, if they'd have said anything to their physician or to their professor, which is probably unlikely, but even if they had, they would have blamed the body, not the book. And this is because when dissections were first done, it was through vivisection, which is um, a criminal would have been sentenced to vivisection, death by vivisection, which is like dissection. Okay, um, And that's, they were the first people that were used, cut open, for scientific advancement. Now, because they were criminals, and because people were deeply religious, if they'd have spotted inaccuracies between Galen's book and the body, they'd go, oh, well, his body isn't like ours because he's an evil person. He's a criminal. He's a murderer. So it makes sense that his body doesn't match what Galen describes because Galen's describing good Christian people like us. Okay? So inaccuracies. So even though there was dissection, again, look at the evaluative nature of this. Church holds back dissection until 1404. Then there is dissection. But dissection wasn't done the proper way, not, not done the way it is today. There were problems with the actual process. So very little is learned from it until, of course, Vesalius changes how dissection is done in um, the sort of 1530s. Okay? There it is. There's a picture of it. Okay, you can see there. Physician at the top. Barb surgeons opening the body. Physician doesn't get his hands dirty. The specialist, the expert probably has never opened the body himself to look inside. Seems odd to us, but that's how it was done. That was a barber surgeon's job. Okay? There you go. Right, that's the first part. That's 
medieval causes and ideas. I'm going to move on to approaches to prevention and treatments. But I am going to take a three-minute break there. If you need to rush out, do come back. Thank you very much. Okay then, so moving on to um, medieval approaches and prevention, treatments, things like that. Um, I'm going to have to pick up the pace, I'm afraid. I've realised we're an hour in. I've done one segment. So I'm going to start going a bit quicker. My apologies. Um, always a danger, isn't it, Mr Hutchinson, talking too much. Uh, but anyway, I'll try and pick it up. Do remember, this is available for you afterwards if you need to go back and improve. So here we go then. So just some of the medieval treatments and beliefs. Okay, some of the treatments you could have got uh, are linked to the people you would have gone and seen. So what women, or sometimes wise women, a lot of treatments would have been done within the home. Herbal treatments, things like that. Okay, Many of them were based on tradition. Many of them were based upon family tradition. Okay, that would have been handed down through word of mouth. It's like today, I don't know whether you got, but when I was a kid and I used to play football and boys going to stinging nettles, I used to go in after it, stinging nettles, get stung, I'd look for dock leaves to stop the stinging nettle. Don't know where that came from, where that lodged. Doesn't work at all, absolute rubbish. But that's, the that's a type of herbal treatment that was handed down. Somebody told me, I tried it. Okay, similar things here. They did have some written books with remedies in, such as Bald's Leech Book. This is an example of a medieval text, okay, that would have had some herbal remedies to it. So Bald's Leech Book, good example of, um, you know, AO1. Uh, it was actually like a poem, weirdly, but yeah, there may have been some copies of that, okay, that they would have used. They may have just remembered and known some of the verses of it as well. Oh, sorry, no, that's not Bald Leech book. I'm talking about Regimen Sanitators. I'll come to that in a minute. Bald Leech book did have um, herbal remedies and things like that in as well. There were hospitals. Okay, there were hospitals. The first ones appeared in the 11th century. They, were, they tended to be attached to monasteries, though. Okay, if you'd have gone there, treat, you wouldn't have had many treatments. You might have had some herbal treatments. You might have been given better food. You probably would have had clean water. And you may have got better because of that. All right, but most of the treatments would have focused on prayer for forgiveness because they believed that God cre um, created most diseases of punishment. So, even in a hospital, you wouldn't have been treated like you would today. Your, 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 your treatments would have focused upon prayer. So, there's examples things like the beds would have faced crucifixes, you'd have prayed three, four, uh, prayed three, four times a day, etc. etc. Um, there were physicians. There were physicians that were trained either in a university or by a guild, okay, by a guild. Um, they would have been trained studying Hippocrates and Galen. Don't forget most universities would have been funded and controlled by the church, though. Okay, and physicians were few and far between. You would have had to have been rich in order to have a physician treat you, okay? So they were rare. They might have also used things like urine charts. They'd have tasted your urine, checked the colour. And the Zodiac Man as well, which is a, a diagram uh, with treatments linked to different times of the year. So they would have used those as well. But they would have been pretty well trained. And there are some famous examples of surgeons that, that, that treated people rather well. More often than not, most people, again, if you had some money, would have gone to a barber surgeon. They're called barber surgeons because they cut hair as well. They had the tools to do both, right? So why not do a little bit of light 
surgery as well. They also might have used urine charts. They also might have used Zodiac men, but they wouldn't have been as well trained. They would have performed basic surgery, okay? Removing a limb if needed to. Removing a tumour on the surface skin if needed to. They had very, very basic knowledge of surgery. They were very, very basically trained. They would have been uh, trained as an apprentice and learned on the job, okay? But they had no advanced knowledge about surgery. Obviously didn't know about um, anaesthetics, antiseptics, things like that, of course. All right. Uh, there were apothecaries as well. These were often people that, that traveled the country selling cures, um, or they might have had a permanent residence in a town. Okay. You would have bought ointments, herbal treatments. Now, again, the quality of the apothecary totally depended, and the quality of what they were selling totally depended. Some of these things might well have worked. More often than not, some of them wouldn't. Some of these apothecaries would have been quacks. These are people that try to make money out of selling false cures. Okay, so again, the quality would, would drastically change as well. There was some examples of public health, but it was rare. Okay, um, in some of the larger towns, um, medieval kings employed people like rakers to clean the streets. Okay, but again, these, these were rare and... In terms of public health, there wasn't any. People were really responsible for their own health. They would have probably have known the Regimen Sanitatus. This, as I mentioned before, was a poem, okay, about keeping clean. Okay, it stands to reason. Again, they make the link between dirt and disease. And most people would have practiced this in medieval times as well. But you were responsible for looking after your own um, hygiene. Okay, so there you go. Video. So on to the Black Death then. Okay, this is a, a case study. It often will pop up asking you to compare this versus the Great Plague. The reason that's popular is because, obviously, this is 1348 1349. Uh, Black Death, the Great Plague is 1665. Okay, some of the treatments are very similar. It's a direct comparison for the same disease, which shows us how far medical progress has come or stayed the same. So the Black Death then, 1348, people were gripped by fear. It's impossible for us to imagine this, okay? Some historians estimate that 75 million people were killed, wiped out in a short period by this disease. 40% of everyone in England. This was literally apocalyptic. Okay? You can only imagine the fear. It's not just the fact that you die. It's the nature of it. Okay? Uh, some pictures on the board. It was an absolutely evil, disgusting, violent, painful disease. Okay? Your um, symptoms would have included giant buboes on your glands, so they manifest themselves on your neck, under your armpits, or in your groin. Okay, they are extremely painful. Okay, and as bad as that is, it's not as bad as that's the bubonic part of the plague. There's the pneumonic part as well, which attacked the lungs. It literally almost sort of melted the lungs inside you. It was extremely painful. Uh, it sent people delirious. So it'd be wandering around, almost half sort of raving mad. Uh, hence the, the sort of dance macabre, the dance of death. Sort of that idea appears now. 
extremely violent, and it did feel to people who were extremely religious at the time that this was a punishment from God, a direct punishment from God. Many people thought this was the end of days. This was it for the human race. Over. Okay? Um, it cannot be overstated how terrifying this would have been for people and leads to some sort of drastic and wild theories about the beliefs of what caused it. Um, there is a map on the board there showing how quickly it travelled. Okay? Over the space of a few years, it absolutely decimates Europe. It travels via the supply routes. Okay? Um, people came up with all kinds of different beliefs about what the cause was, as well as different preventative measures. Most of them, of course, were ineffectual. The most important, or sorry, the most popular one, of course, was religious beliefs. Many people saw this as a direct punishment from God. Okay? In 1345, there was some strange movement of the planets as well. I don't know exactly what that was. It might have been an, uh, an eclipse or something like that. Soon after that, the plague happened. So some people blame that for it. All right? Most of the treatments are linked to prayer. Praying for forgiveness, maybe going on pilgrimage, which you'll know from our medieval course, going to a site of religious significance to pray. Okay? The further you went the more likely you were to be forgiven. That's what they believed. But of course, in doing that, you're only spreading the plague further. Okay, they didn't realise that. Okay. Um, yeah, another obviously popular prevention was one I mentioned earlier, which was flagellation. So you get the appearance of the, the, the cults, cults of flagellants who would literally punish themselves severely in an attempt to stop God from doing them. That wasn't backed by the church, though, by the way. Flagellation was disagreed with by the church. But it was an extreme reaction from extremely religious people that believed that this was it for the human race. Okay? There are some sort of more rational thinking thoughts that appear around this time as well. Some people write that this is caused by miasma. All right? But of course, don't forget that miasma was often linked to God at this stage. Okay? Four humours was used. Bleeding, purging, making people sick, making people go to lose in, a, in, a, in an attempt to balance humours. Okay? But that only weakened people and made them die quicker. Okay? Um, also, another treatment for this was lancing. Lancing is literally cutting the buboes. Think, you know, when you get a really big spot and you pop it. Yeah, disgusting, isn't it? Think of that, but on an extreme, on a much bigger level. Cutting open buboes the size of golf balls. Absolutely disgusting. All that meant, of course, was that they're more likely to get infected or the pus would, you know, get on your hands and you're more likely to spread the disease that way. Okay? Um, in Europe, and again, great AO1, didn't happen here, no Jews here by that time, but in, because they were exposed they were kicked out of the country by Edward I. In um, Europe, though, Jews were blamed because Jews move around or, or tend to move around and settle. You know, new people come and settle somewhere, then the plague breaks out. So they blame it on those newer people that have just arrived, totally unfairly, of course. Okay? And so in some places, like Italy, Germany, Jews were burned alive for being blamed for poisoning water and causing the Black Death. There are other absolutely wacky ones as well. Um, some people blamed them on 
people's dress and things like that. Okay, you're wearing outlandish fashions and showing too much skin. So God's punishing us for all kinds of weird. They were desperate. They had no idea what caused it. We know now, or we think now, that it was caused by fleas on rats. They did not know that, folks. So be careful what you're writing. They didn't know that. All right. Okay, so that's the Black Death. Moving into the Renaissance then. So I've done a bit about beliefs and treatments. I've done the Black Death, medieval times. Okay. You need to compare the medieval times to the ancient time. What went before? Was it progress? Was it regression? Mainly, of course, it's regression and stagnation as a result of the church. Things start to change during the Renaissance. Okay, so we're looking around 1500 now. The Renaissance literally means rebirth. Okay, the Renaissance is an age of discovery, an age of asking questions. Okay, finally here people start to think, or they start to look backwards at the ancient thinkers, people like Hippocrates, people like Aristotle, Plato, people like that. And they start to ask themselves, well, why were they so successful? Why do we still look at those guys as, you know, the great thinkers of the human race? What did they do to achieve that? They asked questions. They didn't just accept the teachings of the church. So people start to question. So it's literally a rebirth. It's a rebirth of a thirst for knowledge. It's a rebirth of questioning. So during the Renaissance, you get all kinds of developments in art, literature, okay, architecture, but also medicine. All right. Um, so here you go. Six key developments then. Firstly... Unlike the medieval times as well, where there was lots of fighting, lots of war throughout Europe, the Renaissance is a little bit more stable, okay? Particularly in this country, all right? During medieval times, think of all the war and battles that are going on during John and Richard's reigns, okay? Um, that's, there's less of that here. So, for example, you know, uh, Henry VIII. Strong governments, rich, people are less concerned with their security and their safety... They feel safe so they can start learning. They can start learning and questioning. They have the time. They have the, the money. The economy booms during the Renaissance. We're talking generally now, of course, but there we go. So people could afford more doctors. Okay? Key development. You've also got a change in technology, an improvement in things such as art. I'm going to focus on this in more detail when I do Vesalius in a moment. But artists such as Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, okay, start pushing the boundaries. Whereas before, art is those two-dimensional medieval drawings, which very nice, but they don't accurately depict the human body. No good trying to learn, you know, a, a, a surgical technique from a, a two-dimensional picture. All right, here now you've got accurate drawings, so they can accurately depict the anatomy of the human body. So it helps progress. It helps people learning. Okay? There we go. In fact, there are some examples. Of medieval pictures there. Very nice. Extremely unrealistic compared to some of the work from Vesalius' Fabrica. Okay? I've already mentioned this really. A revival of learning. There's a thirst for knowledge. A genuine want to develop and change. Okay? Asking questions, not solely relying upon the church 
as the, or God, as the explanation for everything. There's a return to scientific method, experimentation, observation, okay? Questioning folks, that's what they do. Chief among that is the development in dissection. Don't forget first public dissection, 1404, um, becomes usual by 1450, okay? You've also got the big one. I think this is an important date, the invention of the printing press, okay? Um, 1440, but became regularly used here by 1470s. Think about what that means for a minute. Earlier in the session, I was talking to you about how the church controlled medical thinking through books, monks writing books by hand. Meant they were very expensive, and they were very rare, and it meant that the church controlled all the medical thinking. Now you've got a printing press, folks. So you can produce books far more quickly. You can produce them very, very cheaply. And you haven't got the church watching every single word that's written. So now you can challenge those ideas. The church doesn't have the same amount of control on the spread of ideas. And that, of course, is very relevant for medical ideas as well. So by the 1470s, the printing press allows for a quicker, cheaper spread of ideas without the influence of the church. That's AO2, all right? That's the type of things you should be writing in your exams in order to gain the marks. Don't just write, oh, medical progress improved because the printing press invented in 1440. That's AO1. You've got to say how, how it changes it. What impact does it have? What influence does it have? That's your AO2. Okay. Discovery of America, 1492. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. All right. Um, new medicines come back as a result of that. New plants are discovered with potential medical properties. Okay. Tobacco, things like that come back as well. Obviously, that's one of the changes for treatments uh, Treatments during the um, the the, the great plague so don't write smoking for the black death nobody smoked didn't have tobacco that comes from the new world okay new weapons as well gunpowder okay so there's new types of wounds new types of injuries that means that um, they're seeing different parts of the body maybe that they hadn't seen before and in a different way. They're forced to innovate and change surgical procedures. They're forced to innovate and change and ask questions about the human body. Okay, all as a result of new weapons. So the Renaissance isn't only a change in the way people think and approach medical process, uh, progress, there's also technological change and new discoveries as well. Okay? You've also got a rise in humanism. The focus on the world around. Rational explanation rather than using God. Mathematics. Science. To explain things rather than just the supernatural, I suppose, for want of a better expression. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that the church has no influence. People are still religious. People are still religious now. Right? It's just that the church loses some of its power because of the rise of humanism, because of the rise of technology such as the printing press. So it's still got some power. People still believe that God was, uh, was one of the causes of disease was, was God, but it wasn't the only explanation anymore. Okay? Miasma kind of separates 
from God during this period as well. So miasma becomes its own theory now, not necessarily linked to God. Okay? Okay? There you go. Rise of humanism. Asking questions instead of accepting God as an explanation. Other things as well. Individuals start to question Galen and Hippocrates. Now that the church can't control them, doesn't have the same power to punish them, people start realising that Galen and Hippocrates got things wrong. And they need to start progressing beyond teachings that were popular a thousand years before. Okay? Church becomes less, making this possible. And a good example of that is they start to allow things like dissection and, of course, the printing press in 1404 as well. Okay? You've also got the development of the microscope. Okay? Around the, I've put 1683 there, but 1680s would be fine. Okay? So people look at a microscopic level and they see little creatures. Okay? They start to think that maybe these little creatures might cause disease. Now, this, this isn't germ theory, so there's no direct link yet. But they're starting to question folks. Okay? They called them animacules. Animacules. Okay? Rational. Not, like, not yet linked to disease, but a step in the right direction. And part of the reason for that is these microscopes weren't as powerful as the ones that um, Pasteur is going to use later on in 1861. Okay, so those are all changes. They're all developments or changes from the medieval period. But there are some similarities. Miasma, not linked to God, but miasma definitely still the dominant theory. Many still believed in God's punishments and reason for disease. People are still using herbal remedies. People are still using the regimen sanitatus. People are still using Borg's leech book, although both considerably less than they were in medieval times. I didn't mention amulets when I did uh, medieval times. Some people wore sort of amulets to ward off evil spirits. That isn't very Christian, I know, but that's linked to the older religions of Britain, okay? The sort of pagan religions before Christianity arrived. Some people kept those beliefs during medieval times or part of them. You know, things, we, we've got some of them today, you know, like black cats and not going underneath ladders and all these weird things. Similar things here, kind of weird superstitions. Um, in the Renaissance, people still believed in weird superstitions. They still wore amulets to ward off disease as well. So there are some similarities here. Okay? Okay, so moving on then into pre uh, pre um, preventions and treatments. Here we go. Okay? Many methods from medieval, uh, from medieval times had continued to be used. For example, theory of opposites continued to be used. Four humours continued to be used. Miasma, herbal remedies. That meant some of the actual uh, um, treatments were similar. Purging, bleeding, things like that. Okay? But there were also some new ideas. You have the emergence of something called transference. Transference becomes a popular idea in um, the Renaissance. It actually starts in the medieval times during the Black Death. You've, we've got some examples of people trying to get the, 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 the Black Plague out of them by using dead toads 
against their buboes, all kinds of weird things. That, that begins to pick up traction in, in the Renaissance, and you've got weird ideas about transference. This is the idea that you can pass your illness onto another being or animal. So you've got weird things like people bathing with foxes and things like that to either get rid of their illness or for the fox's sort of strength and cunning and agility to sink into you. A bit strange, but that's one of the differences that becomes popular during the Renaissance. Okay? Cleanliness is still important. Okay? Cleanliness is still important. Regimen sanitatus, still important. Miasma, still important. But uh, some changes. Bathing becomes a little less fashionable. Bit odd. A little bit odd. But bathing just becomes less fashionable and part of that is because of syphilis which is a sexually transmitted disease which um, absolutely runs rife throughout England in um, the Renaissance. Some people think that that's caused uh, through bathing and therefore bathing becomes less popular. Okay, So they thought they could keep clean by cleaning their clothes more often. Of course we know that's not the case but that's one thing that changes there. Okay. Um, the rise of astrology, linking disease to weather, okay? And during the Renaissance, you've got more direct attempts to try and combat miasma by getting rid of rubbish in the streets and things like that as well, okay? So some changes. Moving on to individuals then. So Thomas Sydenham, the new arrival on the new version of this course. The English Hippocrates. What did he do? Well, first of all, he wrote a book. He wrote a book, Observations Medicae, in 1676, Observations About Medicine. Essentially, folks, he did a couple of things. Firstly, he uh, developed bed manner. That means how you deal with your patients. So, sort of going back to the idea of Hippocrates and observing people over time, okay? He also believed in healthy eating and drinking. Yes, this isn't a new idea, but he, he sort of brings it back. I, I call him the chicken man because he allegedly treated everything with chicken. Chicken's filled with vitamins, minerals. Okay, so that may well have worked. But the main thing he did was change treatments. A lot of the treatments based on the four humours, as I mentioned previously, were dependent upon the time of year. So even if two people would have had the same disease, they may have been treated differently because they may have been born in different years or whatever, at different times of the year, whatever. Thomas Sydenham, and it seems obvious to us, but Thomas Sydenham wrote about the importance of treating the disease, not the person. So if you've both got the same stomach illness, irregardless of when you were born, irregardless of how old you are, you get treated the same. That's what we do today, right? That's what we do today. We treat the illness, not the person. That's what he did. 1676. I've already been through the printing press. I will not go through it again. You've also got the Royal Society. 1665 onwards. The Royal Society was given money by Charles II, who was king at the time. Okay? We all live close to Worcester. All right? Bit of a Worcester, Worcester hero, Charles II. Um... He gave money, and he sort of championed, put his royal seal of approval to this. Now, the Royal Society was a group of philosophers, mathematicians, scientists, doctors that came together to discuss and share ideas. New 
development. So look, these are people actively coming together to practice this idea of humanism and renaissance, to question, to use it. Oh, I didn't look at that from a mathematical point of view. What do you think, doctor? Oh, well, as a doctor, I think this. What about the astronomer? What do you... Th okay. So they're all sharing ideas from their fields of expertise. Now, it wasn't perfect. They did some weird things. They, they met and discussed the, uh, the, the existence of werewolves and all kinds of weird things. But they did also come up with some key developments. And perhaps even more importantly, they produced a pamphlet as well. So produced like a book with their findings in. So again, spreading their ideas. Now look, guys, this is an example of government, I suppose, or the king, the establishment, directly now getting involved with medical thinking, medical progress, giving money, and, and attempting to force change. That's a change from medieval times. But that didn't happen. Other individuals. Vesalius. Okay, the first one. In 1500s, the most important books were still those of Galen. So I'm going back in time a little bit. Still those of Galen. They had been dominant for hundreds of years, those ideas. Yes, people did question Galen before, Roger Bacon, Henry de Mondeville. But Vesalius is one of the first that openly questioned him and began to change the ideas that were in Galen and prove that he was wrong. Okay? Even though... He wasn't English. He didn't practice in England. His work did influence surgeons in England. AO2. AO2. Okay. Explain, explanation. Okay. The popularity of his book didn't, wasn't very popular at first, but did slowly gain popularity later on. I'm going to go into this. Obviously, his success then is directly linked to the printing press. Because without the printing press, his book, Fabrica, 1543, would not have been spread as quickly, wouldn't have been read as widely, and perhaps wouldn't have had the influence on English surgeons that it had. Um, I am going to give you a break for my voice now, and I am going to play a video this time around. Um, hopefully the sound's working. This is a video on Vesalius. Vesalius does uh, a few things, really. First of all, in 1543, he produces his book, The Fabric of the Human Body. Okay, and you can see the artwork on the board. The main development here is the accuracy, the detail, the anatomy. This helps uh, surgeons understand the way the body works. Okay, look at the detail of the muscles, the way the bones are. It's a work of art as well, but that's only possible because of the technological uh, improvements in art. And of course, he's greatly, his success is greatly helped by the printing press, which you know, actually gets these ideas out there. He also changes the way that dissection is done. And you can see that on the front cover of his book, where he is there with his hands inside the body. Now, it's strange, but he challenged the old way of dissection, this way of public dissection, which I described earlier, with the professor reading. Through Ga reading Galen, barber surgeons cutting open. No. He said, if you're going to be a professional, you're going to be a physician, you've got to learn yourself. Okay? And he was wildly popular for it. The, his students loved it. They loved getting their hands involved and opening the body, so it became popular. Okay? And his surgeons that he trained were the best ones. So 
his ideas spread. And it sounds so obvious to us, doesn't it? But he changed the way dissection was done. Now, bypassing Galing. Okay? And he proves through that. He proves beyond any doubt that Galen had inaccuracies. Which, of course, AO2 leads to further questioning of Galen and eventually Galen being totally and utterly disregarded completely in favour of new techniques. So, he improves understanding of the body through his book, The Fabrica, which is linked to the printing press and technological changes in art. And he changes the way dissection is done. Look at some of these photos, folks, for the day. Bearing in mind that this was the art beforehand. Look at the detail. Absolutely stunning. If you've ever seen the Fabrica as well, it's amazing. Uh, I don't, it's in a museum, I can't remember which one. But it's like a pop-up book, it's really weird. It's got like, you open up the body, like, like a children's pop-up book. It's amazing for 1543. Okay? So, guys, thank you. He made the study of anatomy not only acceptable, but fashionable. So more surgeons wanted to become surgeons because of his work. Okay? His work was copied. His work was built upon, even plagiarised. He inspired other anatomists, okay? Some of whom went to correct his work and build upon it, okay? Most important, he was a trailblazer. He was the first one to do it, okay? So his work is drastically important. Now, you can be critical of him, a bit harsh probably, but his work didn't improve life expectancy overnight. Okay, didn't have an immediate impact, but longer term, all of the surgical developments that we're going to look at could be linked to Vesalius initially. He was the one that made that first step, AO2. So you could link Lister or Harvey to Vesalius. Yeah, AO2 folks inspired the work of William Harvey. Okay. Speaking of which, there he is, William Harvey. So the next character. Now, William Harvey is English. He studied at the same university as Galen, later, of course. He was born in 1578, and he produced a book. Books are important. Typical long name, An Anatomical Account of the Motion of Heart and Blood. And he produced this in 1628. He was also a doctor of Charles II, which shows you how good he was. He served on the front lines of the English Civil War as well, where he learned about the body. But anyway, it's his book that we're most interested in. Galen said that blood is used like fuel. I use the analogy fuel in a car. Galen wouldn't have known what that was, but same, same principle. The blood's like fuel and it burns off like fuel in a car. Okay? Galen wrote that it's like fuel. William Harvey began to realise through scientific observation and experimentation that this was not possible. He started to realise that actually it's the same amount of blood going round the body like pump. And he actually was inspired by the water pump, which had recently been invented. I thought, wow, maybe the body works that way. Absolutely amazing. So he did a bunch of tests on animals and on the human body, putting rods down veins and arteries. All this. I had a really disgusting video. I'm not going to show you. Uh, I have had students walk out in the past, so I'm not going to do it. But, but 
he put like rods down veins to show that, you know, so put a rod down a vein and it wouldn't go, showing that blood was coming that way and then it would go the other way. Do you see what I'm, I've explained that really badly. You get the idea. He proved through experimentation that blood is not used up like a fuel, that it's pumped around the body, that it's oxygenated, deoxygenated, and all goes around one way. Okay? Now look, guys, that's the basis for the circulatory system. He builds upon the idea of Vesalius. And he's, his ideas further discredit Galen. So Vesalius starts that. Harvey does it again. So by now, after Harvey's work, Galen is, is virtually completely refuted. That means not believed. Because too many people are proving Galen wrong now. Okay? That's what he does. But also starts the understanding about blood and the circulatory system. Yep, you could link blood grouping to um, William Harvey all those years later in 1901. All starts here. Remember, impact, influence, AO2. Not just who he was and what he did. I'm not going to do that, sorry. Okay? So there you go. So there are your main characters in the Renaissance. On to the Great Plague! Of 1665. Excuse me. And I will take a break after this. <coughs> so. Best thing to do here is think about the Great Plague in conjunction with the Black Death. Black Death, just over 300 years earlier. Did anything change? This is the exact same disease. Bubonic Plague, Pneumonic Plague, Septicemic Plague. Same thing. Three different diseases all arrive at the same time to make what we call, you know, the Black Death. Or the great, or the, the the plague, I suppose. Okay, so preventative measures beforehand still poor. In 16th century London, it was extremely unhealthy. Okay, more people come to London. Okay, cities were getting bigger, not quite where they were in Victorian times. Yeah, but still very, very unhe unhealthy. Houses were cramped and squalid. Lots of fa entire families living in, in, in a single room. No sewage system, or if, if they're, or a very poor sewage system, sewage tipped out onto the streets. Water came from rivers and streams as well. Disease spread easily. They blamed it on the same things they blamed all disease on, mainly. Astrology, God. Now that actually becomes more popular during the Great Plague. Because of the desperation. They still didn't know what caused it. Just like 1348. So they, the, the belief in God actually goes up again. So you have humanism, Vesalius, Harvey, Sydenham, Royal Society. All questioning God as a, as a, as a belief in what caused disease. Um, gets more popular during the Great Plague because of, of how desperate they were. Miasma is the main belief though. Again, by far and away the main belief. Now, there are some similarities and differences. Yes, you've got prayer. Yes, you've got prayer. But the main difference, really, is to do with government intervention. Government intervention. So the main difference here is that in 1665, the government intervenes. They released the plague orders. The plague orders in 1665. Now, the plague orders basically do all these things that you can see on the board. So, what they do is, any house containing a plague sufferer is sealed up for 40 days with a red cross. That's a form of quarantine. 
Okay, a little bit different from medieval times where they didn't do that. Absolutely brutal, of course. Death sentence for the family. If one person has the plague, the other families don't. By shutting them all in the same house, you're pretty much killing the, 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 the people inside. Okay? They created jobs during the plague to try and combat it. You had people like searchers that searched each, each corpse. Okay? They also... Um, employed watchmen that made sure that people didn't leave their houses when they were boarded up to try and keep the quarantine. And all that was paid for by brokers who were also employed by the government. Brokers, um, when you had a plague victim, all their possessions went to the government to pay for the plague orders, to pay for searches, to pay for brokers, to pay for plague doctors, to pay for watchmen. They burnt barrels of tar in the streets to combat the miasma. That might have helped because that might have actually scared off the rats. Okay, it helped. Now, they didn't, they didn't know that that was why it helped, but there you go. Okay? Um, they buried people in mass graves. Okay? Plague carts, things like that. So, some similarities and differences. Similarities, there's still a belief that God caused disease. And an example of that would be, you know, sometimes there's writing on the doors or quarantine with God help us, Lord have mercy, phrases like that showed that people still believed in God. So that's a similarity, isn't it? Difference, government intervention. Large-scale government intervention through the plague orders, um, searchers, brokers, watchmen, okay? You've also, of course, got plague doctors as well. Plague doctors were apothecaries sometimes, not physicians. They tended to be apothecaries. They tended to wear these large coats. They had the mask with the uh, um, sweet-smelling herbs in the, in the beak to, to combat the miasma, to keep them safe. And they would treat people, but they would mainly just lance buboes and, and, and offer herbal treatments and things like that. Okay? So again, another similarity there, isn't there? So similarities and differences between the Great Plague and 1348. You may be asked about that in the four marker. Okay, and ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the Renaissance. I've got two more periods to go, so that marks halfway, which is perfect. I am going to take a little four-minute break there. Thank you very much. Okay, so that brings us into the uh, sort of 1700s, a sort of industrial era, if you want, 1700 to 1900. Remember, you might see that as a, as a little C, circa, circa 1700 to 1900. Do look at the dates in your question. Um, you could write the greatest... Um, history, answer, 12 mark in the world, full of AO1, full of AO2. If you're not talking about uh, an event or a character or whatever within the dates, obviously you, you lose marks, so just be careful for that. Anyway, 1700 to 1900 then. General causes. So this is the beliefs in what causes were. And you, as you can see, still many similarities. Miasma, still the dominant theory. Does begin to change, though, during this era, towards the end of it. People still believe that there's punishments from God. People are still very religious, just not as much as they were previously. Um, animacules, which I mentioned previously as well. Okay, I hate saying this guy's name. I'm definitely saying it wrong. It's a Dutch fella, uh, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek. Leeuwenhoek? It's a, it's, a, it's a crazy one, spelling-wise. Uh, do your best with it. Remember, you only get marked on spellings on the 16 marker. 
Um, I don't think that if you put that in a 16 mark and you missed one of the three, four E's that are in his name, that you'd be punished severely. You're better off having a go at it. As long as they know what you mean, you will get the marks there. Anyway, um, obviously, in the 1600s, he creates a microscope. They start seeing little creatures running around on the surface of things. There's no link to disease yet, but a few people are still starting to ask the question whether that is the case. They call those animacules. And you've got a new theory now as well, spontaneous generation. So this is the idea that when things start to decay, that um, little organisms, maggots, are spontaneously generated by the decay, and they cause disease. Okay, So that's the new theory. Now that appears because of the microscope. Because they can see it now. Okay? And so they start to think that disease and detritus and um, um, decay causes these creatures. Okay? Still going. Right, okay. You've also got the arrival of smallpox. Smallpox, I say the arrival, smallpox, I'm talking about cholera. Ignore me entirely. Smallpox has been a problem for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, okay? Um, thousands of years, sorry. Thousands of years, okay? And it's an absolutely vicious disease. If you catch it and you survive, you are left with savage scarring that's, that, that, that stay with you for the rest of your life. So just by looking at you, they would know that you've had smallpox in your life. And there's nothing that they could do about it. Okay, really big problem. Now, obviously, here, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on Edward Jenner. Okay, I'm not going to go into the story in too much detail. But Edward Jenner, of course, discovers the first vaccination. Now, the important thing to remember here is that something similar was already being practiced during this time. Okay, and that is inoculation. Inoculation um, comes from Buddhist monks, actually. But begins to become popular in the sort of 1600s, 1700s, okay? And inoculation is the practice of giving somebody a disease so that they build up a resistance to it. They didn't know why that worked, but they did make that, that, that connection. The problem with inoculation is that it's dangerous because if you give somebody the disease, they might contract the full disease and die, okay? Um, Jenner, of course, um, discovers vaccination, which is slightly different. Vaccination is the process of giving somebody a different disease that's that's weaker that still builds up a resistance or a weakened version of the disease okay now look in terms of impact here ao2 the majority of you unless you've opted out which is your right but the majority of you will have been vaccinated you will have been okay probably in this school okay i've got i have been i've still bear the scar so this is a discovery which directly affects us now, okay? So, of course, what happens? Okay, so Edward Jenner using scientific method, using this idea of questioning, okay, begins to realise that uh, milkmaids don't contract smallpox. They're famously pretty milkmaids because they don't have smallpox. And, in fact, milkmaids would say to each other, oh, I'll never get smallpox because I've had cowpox. Okay? It's Jenner that makes the link. It's Jenner that makes the link that perhaps this disease is stopping them from getting smallpox. Now look, 
Cowpox isn't very pleasant, but it doesn't have anywhere near as bad symptoms as um, smallpox. So, again, through scientific methods, he conducts an experiment. A man by the name of James Phipps. Okay? So he actively takes a bit of cowpox from a, from a cow's udder and puts it in the wound. And then later on, he gives him smallpox and finds that he's fine, which is lucky, right? Always think, what if that hadn't worked? Anyway, there we go. All right? He has a slight headache, but then he's fine. So Jenna inoculated him. Okay? That was the first vaccination. Okay? It was a breakthrough. He called it vaccination after the Latin for a cow. Okay? But again, if you're evaluating him, although he knew it worked, he couldn't prove it. He had no idea why it worked. Sorry, he could prove it, but he didn't know why it worked. He couldn't explain why it worked. Also, Edward Jenner was a small-town doctor from Gloucestershire. He had a farmer accent. He wasn't respected. So his ideas were refuted, you know, weren't fully accepted, okay? And, of course, he was heavily discredited by religious groups and the inoculators, the people that were making money from inoculating people. Vaccination, if it works, is far better, far safer. So the inoculators who had vested interests, I'm using that phrase so you can write it, vested interests, which means their own interests in their own money, okay, tried to discredit him. Okay? So the impact of Jenner's findings, though, he sent his findings to the Royal Society. Loads of them were opposed to him. You would think... This would be a, wow, what an amazing discovery. Mr. Jenner, you are a genius. You have saved humanity from smallpox. Didn't have that reaction, folks. Didn't have that reaction. Instead, he was met with discourse and disgust in some cases, particularly by religious groups that thought this was unnatural. Putting a bit of a cow into the human body that's created by God, what are you doing? You're playing with God's creations. Okay, he was, he was criticised for that. Alright? In the end, in the end, uh, the Royal Society, with all the money, wouldn't publish his findings. Imagine that, such an amazing discovery. Wouldn't publish it. So he had to fund it himself, and he published his own work in 1798. Now look, let me highlight this to you, 1798. So be really careful, because that is right at the end of the 18th century. So be careful with the wording of a question, yeah? If you use generous evidence and it's 18th century, you're golden, all right? If it's 17th century, hang on, yeah, you're still golden, yeah? But if it's 19th century, no good. Does that make sense? Yeah? So if you're asked about 19th century, you're not quite there yet. 1800s. Okay? If it's circa 1800, you're not quite there yet. So be careful when it comes to Jenner. 1798, he was published. Okay? All right? Now, here's the thing. Despite the fact there was an initial negative reaction... Okay, and you get cartoons like the one on the board, which I'm sure your class teacher's showing you, which is the cartoon published in a newspaper with cows growing out of people. Eventually, his vaccine was accepted, and in 1852, becomes compulsory. And it's only then 
that smallpox begins to disappear in England. Now look, the government have something to do with this, don't they? Because it's the government that enforce the vaccination, the fact that it has to be compulsory. So it's not until 1852, 54 years after he published his findings, that it actually has a real impact on people's lives and stops smallpox. Okay, Edward Jenner. Moving on to hospitals then. Character on the board of the course is Florence Nightingale. I won't do that. She, her work rose to prominence during the Crimean War of 1853 and 1856. She, of course, changed the way nursing was done. That's what she did. Ladies and gentlemen, where would we be today without nurses? Nurses do an, an app, just such a valuable job. Okay, we owe nurses a lot. Florence Nightingale pioneered this entire profession. Before Florence Nightingale, nurses were synonymous with prostitution and they were not professionals. So when Florence Nightingale, an extremely well brought up, somebody from a wealthy background, went to her parents and said, I want to be a nurse, they were horrified because they didn't understand what she meant. But she didn't mean nurses as they were known then, what she meant was she wants to help people. Okay, she wants to be an actual nurse. She wants to be a nurse as we know them today. And she pioneers this whole thing. She went to the Crimean War. Okay, uh, she was met with fierce resistance from a sexist, um, patriarchal society. Okay, that would only let male doctors treat people, particularly soldiers. But anyway, she, she was determined. She didn't give up. She went to Skatari Hospital in the Crimea, okay, with her team, and she started to make significant changes, okay? Picture on the board is a picture of Skatari Barrack Hospital before Florence Nightingale's arrival, and there were lots of problems. Soldiers that were wounded were often just left on the floor. They were overcrowded. They were dirty, okay? They were only given one meal a day, and it was really poor quality. There were no toilets. There were rats running around. Okay? It was absolutely shocking. Okay? Florence Nightingale suggested... Florence Nightingale also loves statistics. She, she, some people think she created the pie chart. She, she drew all the statistics. Amazing character. Anyway, so she's famous for the history of maths, in the history of maths as well. But anyway, she suggests that 16... To 18,000 people that died could have been prevented from simple hygiene in the hospital. Okay? Um, in 1855, uh, the British government sent out a commission, a group of people, to go and look into her claims, and they found that Skatari Hospital was built on top of a sewer, which obviously had rats running around, including rats and things like that. Okay? And that the patients were drinking contaminated water. Not good. So, Florence Nightingale sets about making changes. And the picture on the board shows you the changes she made. Here we go. She improved the organisation. She made sure hospitals were clean and swept regularly. She made sure everyone had a bed off the ground far away from each other. She made sure it was less crowded. She made sure that everyone had fresh linen. And they were their bedclothes washed wash regularly. Guys, before Florence Nightingale, they used the same bandages. So you use a bandage, a blood-soaked bandages would be used on other soldiers afterwards. She got rid of all that. 
okay? She improved ventilation, air, okay? She made sure it was lots of light coming in the room. She made sure that nurses observed their patients over time and double-checked on them and went round to see their condition improving. General organisation. She basically changed the entire idea of what a nurse's job was. After half a year in her arrival, the mortality rate in the hospital dropped from 42% to 2%. Now look, we've looked at people like Vesalius. We've looked at people like Harvey. We've even looked at people like Edward Jenner. None of them had an overnight impact. Florence Nightingale. Virtually overnight impact to those people that lived there. Or to live there. Those people that were in Skatari Hospital. Now, the interesting thing here is that these, this, of course, is before germ theory. Um, so she didn't really understand why a lot of these things improve things. These methods improve things. But... She did believe in miasma. She totally and utterly fervently believed in miasma. Now, you can see within these methods that belief, can't you? Particularly with things like ventilation. So even though she believed in a theory which isn't true, it had a positive effect, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Quite interesting. But there you go. Okay? Now, here's the, arguably the most important thing, because that's all AO1. That's all knowledge. AO2, impact and influence. After the war, she kept on working. She improved hospitals back at home. She opened training schools and wrote books. Okay? Notes on nursing, incidentally, is, I think, still being published today. Okay? So she organised the first training school for nurses at St. Thomas's Hospital. Okay? Uh, Notes on Nursing, by the way, was published in 1859. So look, just before germ theory. Just before germ theory. Okay? But it's her influence that's most important. She changed the way nursing was seen. It turned it into a respectable job. And, yeah, she, she changed the way hospitals were organised. Look at this. Elderly, sick or disabled, poor before were, first into, were forced into workhouses. She changed things so that hospitals were, became specialist. <coughs> so you had different areas for different diseases and different specialisms like we do today. Okay? Nurses were given a more central role for care, just like they have today. Hospital cleanliness and organisation was the main thing. Greatly improved in all hospitals back at home. Because the evidence is irrefutable, folks. She's changed. She, she's changed the survival rate, the death rate, from 42% to 2%. Or we better implement that back at home then, don't we? And improve hospitals back at home. So that's her influence. She literally creates an entire profession, which we still use today. Right, on to surgery. Now, I know this is one that some of you worry about or can't remember. We did breeze through it, Okay. Remember, preventative measures, treatments, beliefs, surgery is almost a separate thing. It would obviously go under treatments, but it's slightly separate. Now, the reason for we don't look at it until the 1800s is because surgery doesn't change very much. Okay, surgery, surgery. And the picture on the board is the famous one of, you know, five guys holding somebody down, okay, as they're getting a leg sawn off. They're in a, an, a, an operating theatre, so-called because 
the public could pay to go and watch. It was entertainment. They're wearing their normal clothes from the outside. There's no thought to germs. They didn't know about that, of course, or dirt. All right. And um, the three main issues with surgery, none of them have been solved. Pain, bleeding, infection. If you get a question on surgery, you should... Uh, you're, whether it's a 12 mark or a 16 mark, you always want to start with saying, writing, there are three obstacles with surgery. Pain, bleeding, and yeah, infection. That's how you measure how far they came. All right? Three obstacles. So, here are the dangers. Surgeons had to operate quickly. That was the only way they could combat pain and bleeding. Speed. If you need to surgi uh, surgically remove a leg... You have to do it within a few seconds. That was the only way to stop a patient from bleeding out and then cauterize the wound, burn it, okay? That's all they had, pain. But of course, if you're operating very quickly, you're more liable to make mistakes, okay? There was no pain relief other than maybe alcohol or sometimes they knocked a patient out, but the doctors were not keen on that. Surgeons were not keen on that. Alcohol thins the blood, which means they're more likely to bleed out. And knocking a patient out obviously can hurt somebody far worse. And secondly, often they want them awake so they can gauge the pain and things like that. So not good. Patients died of infection. There was no sterilised equipment, no sterilised um, clothes. The environment was not sterilised. They didn't wash their hands. They didn't know they needed to. Bandages were reused. Okay, And many people often died of the general trauma. Famous example... Of talented surgeons, Robert Liston, Scottish surgeon. He was famous for uh, being able to amputate a leg in two and a half minutes. He was a showman. He played up to the whole idea of the theatre. His, his uh, catchphrase was, time me gentlemen. So he'd come in and he'd, before he took off the road, be like, time me gentlemen. And you'd all time him and he'd try and beat his record. He was a showman. That's what surgery was. Okay? As I say, working quickly was the only way... Made myself jump there. Sorry, you all awake. I forgot the PowerPoint does that. Uh, I think it does it again. And again. One more time. There we go. For those on the podcast, no idea what's going on there, but never mind. Okay. So, Robert Liston then um, operated quickly. Now, he is known as being an extremely talented, extremely skilled surgeon. Even he made mistakes because of the speed. He once killed two people in an operation because he was going so quickly he slipped. One of the, uh, his assistants holding the guy down, he cut his fingers. That guy died of an infection and he also took the testicles off of his patient and that guy died of infection. So he, he, he once performed an operation with a 200% death rate. All right. And um, he was supposed to be the most talented surgeon in Britain. So there you go. Okay? So that was the problem. That was how surgery was done. Now, the first thing they over tried to overcome was pain. And they had different methods, I suppose. So the first attempt was laughing gas. This was discovered by a man, or the, it's... it's Anesthetic properties were discovered by Humphrey Davy in uh, 1799. Okay? And we still use that today, don't we, in dentistry and things like that. Not ideal, though, because um, patients not always unconscious 
Okay, and sometimes it doesn't work. People have different tolerance levels. It's difficult to gauge how much people need. Um, so nitrous oxide, not great for most surgery. Great for childbirth, great for uh, dentistry, still used for dentistry today, but not great for operations. So it was a step forward, but no good. Then you've got ether. Now, it's Robert Liston that first uses this. Okay, in 1846... Uh, sorry, first used it in this country. It's actually sort of used first in America, but anyway. Now, ether's horrible. It's absolutely horrific. It does knock people out, great, but it burns the lungs, it burns the eyes, causes sickness, and worst still, it's flammable. Now, there are no electric lights, so they're, they're doing surgery by candlelight. So having a flammable liquid in the room, not a good idea, okay? So, not good. Eventually... Well, a year later, James Simpson develops the use of chloroform. And there's, there's a great video on this, I'm sure your class teacher showing you, where James and all of his mates are just getting smashed on various chemicals, trying to find an anaesthetic. Um, and the story goes that they get this new chloroform, they take the lid off and they leave it in the room, and then the next thing they know, they wake up hours later, they don't even know what's happened. They discover... Okay... Um, there you go, chloroform. First used in 1847. Now, there is drawbacks to this in the sense that, just like Jenna, many people were opposed to it. Some people thought that pain is a creation by God, and therefore, by trying to get rid of pain, you're messing with God's work. And so, some religious people were against this. But, it was used for childbirth, and Queen Victoria used it to deliver one of her children, and she, um, it was publicised in the newspaper, and that gained this a lot of credibility. So chloroform, after 1847, solves the problem of pain. Okay? Now they need to fight infection. So this leads to the development of antiseptics. Now here's the thing, folks. This sort of jumps forward in time a bit to after germ theory. Okay? Because it's only... Once germs are discovered that they realise why infection is caused. So Pasteur influences this. So again, AO2. The work of Pasteur leads to developments in anaesthetics. Okay? Sorry, antiseptics. My apologies. All right? So, for generations, surgeons have gone from operation to operation without washing their hands, wearing masks or gowns, without sterilising their equipment. And uh, infection was very common as a result of that. Also, women during, dying during childbirth was very common as well because of infection, because of these reasons. Okay? Now, weirdly, initially, the development of an anaesthetics, which I've just said is an improvement, so chloroform, leads to more deaths because now that the patient's knocked out, it leads to surgeons trying to take their time, trying to do more complex surgery. And actually, that leads to more bleeding, more infection, and more people die. So in the short term, anaesthetics makes things worse. But in the long term, of course, massive improvement. Anyway, back to um, antiseptics. Now, actually, this work is pioneered by somebody a little bit earlier a man by the name of Semmelweis in the 1840s. Now, he is a doctor that works with pregnant women. 
So Semmelweis works with pregnant ladies. And he's absolutely infuriated by the amount of women dying from infection. So he begins to realise that um, the problem might be due to dirt. Doesn't know why, no germ theory yet. But he begins to think that might be the case. He begins to realise that those um, doctors that wash their hands before delivering a baby have a much better survival rate. So he writes a book about the importance of washing your hands if you're a surgeon. So it leads to this idea of cleanliness and hygiene in surgery. Just Semmelweis. So that precedes or comes before the work of uh, Joseph Lister. Okay? Now Joseph Lister is a surgeon who studied Pasteur's work with great interest. I'm going to do Pasteur in a minute. AO2. If you're writing about Pasteur and germ theory, his work directly leads to the development of antiseptics in surgery. Okay? Um, he thought that the high death rate surgical patients might be due to these microorganisms in the air that Pasteur um, found. So Lister, Pasteur makes the link between germs, as he calls them, and disease. Lister makes the, the link between germs and death in surgery. Okay? Infection. So he begins to experiment with antiseptic surgery, killing germs surgery. And he uses something called carbolic spray. Okay? So, first of all, washes his hands using Semmelweis's work. Then using Pasteur's work, produces something which sprays carbolic acid over the wound as you're literally operating. All right? And as a result of that, death rates go down. Now, it's not perfect. People still do die from um, infection. They don't yet have aseptic surgery, which is keeping the germs out entirely. That doesn't come until the early 1900s. Okay? Um, but it's a step in the right direction. And it shows, again, builds upon Pasteur's work, showing the importance of um, combating germs whilst operating. So it goes some way to combating infection. So they've, they've, they've tackled pain with anaesthetics. They've tackled infection with antiseptics. They haven't quite got over the bleeding issue, but step in the right direction. Now they do have something called ligatures. Ligatures were developed during the Renaissance and they're literally threads that tie up blood vessels. So rather than cauterizing, you tie the stitched blood vessels up, which stops the bleeding. Now they were, de they were developed during the Renaissance, but they weren't, they weren't very successful because obviously if you're stitching up a blood vessel, you're taking bacteria into that wound and infection. So they weren't very successful. The work of Lister, however, means that they come back. Because now they can use carbolic spray to disinfect the ligatures and then they could be used again. Okay? There you go. Which leads me nicely on to the man himself, Pasteur. Now I'm not going to spend too much time here because I'm absolutely certain this has been the focus of your revision. 1861 should be absolutely ingrained on your brains because it changes so much and influences so much. Along with the printing press, 1440, and along with the um, um, Second Public Health Act, 1875, which I'm going to go through in a moment as well. 
So Pasteur discovers the link. He discovers germs. He disproves spontaneous generation. And he makes the link between disease and germs. He does all of that, folks. And he does all of that whilst working for the beer and wine industry, initially, because he was investigating why their beer and wine went bad. Okay? So again, through scientific method and experimentation, he developed a swan neck flask, which trapped air. He realized that um, putting material in a swan neck flask, I'm trying to find it, where the air can't get to it, it lasts much longer. Whereas if it's in an open flask where the air can get to it, it goes bad quickly. So he realizes that there's something in the air causing this material to go bad. Okay? Bacteria or germs. Okay? Microorganisms in the air all around us. Okay? Now, the thing he does there is disprove spontaneous generation. He realizes that it's not the rotting things that, that produce bugs. It's the bugs causing things to rot and decay. Okay? But he goes one step further, folks, and here's the genius of Pasteur. He makes the link f between that and disease. If these microorganisms are making food and beer go bad, maybe they're making humans go bad. He makes that link, and he's absolutely right. Okay? That's what he does. He uses more powerful microscopes, okay, which had recently become available. He could absorb the growth of unwanted small organisms in liquid. He also discovers a way to kill them. What a dude. Pasteurization. By heating things up, you can actually kill the bugs. All right? So, you know, your milk in the morning, your frosties, whatever, thanks to Pasteur. Okay? Carries out an a, a series of experimentation experiments with liquids in flasks, showing that microorganisms exist in the air. Okay, they exist in different concentrations depending on where they are. Okay, and these organisms cause decay, and they would be destroyed by heat. Pasteur's work directly influences the work of another man, Robert Koch. Okay, Robert Koch is doing similar work. They hate each other, by the way. There's been a recent war between Germany and France. They were great rivals. It's a, it's a great reason. They push, they push each other. They're trying to outdo each other. So they're trying to innovate and be the first to discover things. Okay? Robert Koch reads Pasteur's work, takes it a step further. So not only has Pasteur identified germs, Koch now develops a method of identifying which germs cause which disease. He, he, he develops a method of dyeing them so they show up better on a microscope. Okay, so that's how it works. You have sort of tit-for-tat discoveries. It's like, you know, a boxing match. And it's often depicted that way. One punches the other, the other one punches back. Okay, so in 1861, Le Pasteur published germ theory uh, to disprove spontaneous generation. Koch then proves Pasteur's germ theory by identifying the bacteria that cause the disease, anthrax, enabled by microscopes, petri dishes, and dyes, which he developed. Pasteur then uses Koch's technique of dyeing. Uh, he identifies bacteria causing chicken cholera and then develops a vaccination. So now they're building on Jenner's work. So it's not just germs, disease, how to kill them. It's now proving how vaccination works and developing more vaccinations. So, you know, Jenner creates vaccination for smallpox. 
Cock creates one for anthrax. Then Pasteur creates one for um, uh, cholera. And it's all because of germ theory. It now proves Jenna correct. Proves how it works. So germ theory influences so much. Improvements in surgery, improvements in public health, vaccinations. It's massive. Okay? Look at this. Cock then, angry about Pasteur's developments. He wanted to be the first to discover germs that cause human disease. He identifies the germs which cause TP, cholera, or other diseases. So on and so on. So they're constantly fighting against you. Now be careful. Cock and Pasteur didn't do this alone. They did have a team around them. Okay? All right? Uh, Pasteur goes on, of course, to develop the Fan uh, Pasteur Institute, which goes on to train more um, doctors and scientists. Okay? But they are both extremely successful. So you notice, I'll go through this, that um, sort of I'm rushing through the history a bit. I'm focusing more on the AO2, what the influences were, what the impacts are. I told you I was going to say this 15 times during this session. I'm probably up to about 14. Um, that's where your focus should be. It's not knowing what the history was, what happens as a result of it. Okay, so that's where I'm focusing most of this. All right, so we've done Pasteur, we've done Robert Cock, we've done surgery. Okay, staying within the 1800s now, I'm going to look at cholera. So cholera, unlike smallpox, is not a problem before. Smallpox is a problem for thousands of years. Cholera arrives brand new in the 1830s. It's a new disease, not yet see, not seen before. It's also a problem on the Oregon Trail, of course, during your American West course. At the same time, 1830s. So it kind of hits everywhere at the same time. Now, one of the reasons it becomes such a problem is because of the way people were living. In 1830s in London, now you've had the Industrial Revolution, or you're in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. So lots and lots of people are moving to cities. Cities can't cope with the population. So the quality of, of, of um, the way people are living actually regresses. It gets a lot worse. Okay? People in back-to-back -back housing, open sewerage in the streets, rubbish in the streets, living in close proximity, smog, um, chemical waste in the Thames, them drinking out of the same water, Horrible sort of standard of, of, uh, of cleanliness in those places. Okay, so cholera arrives in the early 1830s. There were other diseases as well, okay, which, which, and waterborne diseases as well, which caused major problems, all as a direct result of hygiene, mainly. Okay, so again, now look, I'm jumping back in time to before germ theory, okay, because this is separate now. We're looking at preventative measures. All right, so cholera... People suffer from vomiting, diarrhoea, often die from dehydration. Absolutely horrible. It is waterborne, but it can also be spread by touch. Okay? So, first of all, you've got this man, Edwin Chadwick. Okay? Edwin Chadwick was a government official, and he was asked to re do a report on the living conditions of people living in Britain. Over two years, he went to major towns, and this is what he found. Okay? He found that in 1840... The richer you were, the more likely you were to live longer. And if you lived in the country, you were more likely to live longer. So if you are a poor person living in a city, your life expectancy was 15 years old. 15, folks. Pretty much your age. So therefore, okay, horrific. He found that if you were, on the other hand... A rich person living in the country, your life expectancy was 52 years old. So considerably longer. All right. 
So why is that important? Well, he begins to make the link that living situation directly affects your health. He makes that link. Okay? Now, despite that irrefutable evidence, that evidence, the government are slow to react. And that is due to Victorian thinking. The Victorians believed in laissez-faire. Leave alone. It's your job to sort yourself out. Government doesn't look after you. You look after yourself. If you're not earning much money, it's because you're not working hard enough. Work harder. Okay? Of course, that's not true, is it? But that's what the government at the time thought. So they didn't believe in interfering with people's lives. Okay? Now, despite Chadwick's efforts, he was saying things like, the poor cost us more. The poor cost us more. So if we, if we prevent people from getting sick in the first place, then maybe they, they, you know, we might be able to prevent government costs. So he's trying to appeal to the government to get involved. Government were very slow to react. Now, it should also be mentioned here that Chadwick believed wholeheartedly in miasma. Okay? And it did lead to some changes. In 1858, the government, preventative measures that are missing from our course before... In 1848, the government passed the first Public Health Act. And here's what it said. National board is to be created that has the power to improve drainage, sewers, rubbish collection, build public toilets, provide clean water. Now, here's the problem. Had the power to. This is not compulsory. Now, the cost of building sewers, the cost of providing clean water is quite a lot. And people didn't want to pay it because they didn't feel that it was fair that they have to pay for other people's cleanliness, if that makes sense. Why should I pay? Because they're not very clean. Why should I lose some of my wages? Okay, that was the idea. Lay safe fair. So, even though this is a step in the right direction, and bearing in mind this is before germ theory, um, it doesn't change much. Okay? But I suppose you could argue there's a small recognition from the government that they should try and do something here based on Chadwick. Now, little changes, folks. Cholera is still a problem. It's been a problem since the 1830s. You get outbreaks throughout the 1840s and the 1850s. Possibly the most famous outbreak on our course is one in 1851, because it leads to the work of John Snow. Now, John Snow actually was an anaesthetist, all right, uh, working in surgery, living in Broad Street. But he decided to investigate into cholera because so many people were dying from it, he took an interest in it and he wanted to know what the reason was. He's a scientist as well. So again, through clinical scientific observation, he investigates. He creates a map and plots the deaths. He begins to suspect that maybe the disease is waterborne. And he proves it. He proves it by plotting on a map where the deaths were happening. And he realised the majority of deaths were all happening around one pump, the Broad Street Pump. Bearing in mind, of course, that in the sort of 1850s, people didn't have running water in their houses. You had water pumps that you had to go and visit with a bucket and take water from. And he found that the deaths were all around the same pump. And when there weren't deaths, there was always a story behind it. Like there was a, a, a brewery on, just off Broad Street. No one died from cholera there. They had their own water supply. Okay? There was a lady that died a few streets away, even though she had a pump closer. It turns out when he interviewed her that she preferred the taste of the water on the Broad Street pump, so she sent her son to go to the Broad Street pump. So he, through observation, scientific method, investigation, he realised it must be waterborne. 
This is before germ theory. It's not miasma, it's water causing the problem. Okay? When he takes the handle off the Broad Street pump, the deaths dry up and stop. Now, you would think that when he takes his findings to the government, actually, sorry, he produces his findings in a book, and it's a great, great name. It's called On Mode of Communication of Cholera, so how, how cholera is spread, okay? And that is 1854, okay? Now, you would think that the government would read that and go, oh, my goodness, miasma isn't true. This disease is waterborne. He's proven it beyond all reasonable doubt. We need to do something. That isn't what happens, folks. In fact, absolutely nothing changes at all. The government don't listen. Miasma is so ingrained as an idea, bearing in mind it's been there since medieval times, that they just can't physically see anything different. It kind of makes sense, miasma, to them. It's... it's, it's, it's Rational. So Jon Snow's work is totally ignored. So even though he disproves miasma in 1854, before um, Louis Pasteur did, his work has little to no impact. Okay? That's important. And it's not until 1861 in germ theory that people look back at Jon Snow's work and go, my goodness, he was right. Of course he was. So his work has little impact. Okay? So a great man did a great thing, zero impact. Okay? Very important. We have all seen that 16 mark question. Uh, John Snow is the most important contributor to the development of measure, uh, me uh, medicine. How far do you agree with this statement? Well, you'd open your paragraph there, talk about John Snow, what he did in the Broad Street Pump, and proving, disproving miasma, AO2, proving that cholera is waterborne, all good stuff. And you'd finish that paragraph by saying, however... Despite his findings, his work had little impact. A greater contributor would be Louis Pasteur, and that would be your next paragraph. Okay? Not going to do that. Right. On to 1858 and the Great Stink. Now, I'm literally going to do this in about 30 seconds. So, in 1858, the, an event called the Great Stink is literally when the Thames gets so polluted with human waste and chemical waste that there is a Great Stink. That, that is... Um, coupled with a very hot summer, it smells so bad that the government are forced to leave Westminster because the smell is that bad. Now, isn't this interesting? In... Uh, hang on. What's going on here? In 1854... In 1854... John Snow makes an extremely compelling case that miasma is, isn't correct and that cholera specifically is waterborne, but other diseases might be as well. Okay? The government do nothing. Okay? The only way to fix that problem is for the government to intervene. They don't do anything. It's not until the great stink in 1858, a few years later, when the government can't run because of the smell, so the rich people are affected, that change begins to happen. Because of the Great Stink, almost immediately, the government um, commissioned this man, Joseph Bazalgette, with the great moustache, to build the sewers in London. Okay? It's a massive undertaking. In fact, he is an industrial just genius. 
Okay, you wouldn't believe the length. He also cre creates the embankments on London as well to keep people separate from the water. But essentially, all the waste now goes underground and goes way out to Cross Ness where it's pumped into the sea way further down so that it can't come back because the, uh, the Thames is a tidal river. Um, it's a huge project. It's not completed until 1870. Okay, after germ theory, in in interestingly, but it started before germ theory. Germ theory goes on to further prove that government are doing the right thing. After germ theory, the government can no longer claim that it's people's own fault whilst they're, whilst they're getting ill. Yeah? The government then has to take responsibility and do something after germ theory. But look, they start in 1858 because of the great stink because the government are inconvenienced. Quite interesting. So you could argue that the development of the sewers is a prevent, uh, prevents um, disease and that is a far more, or a reason which has a greater impact than someone like Jon Snow. Quite interesting. Now, the other thing, and here's the other date, which I mentioned earlier, it should be ingrained on your brains. Germ theory, the work of Jon Snow, and the Great Stink, and the development of the sewers, all lead to the 1875 Public Health Act. Now look, this is almost exactly the same as the 1848 one, except it has one extremely important difference. It still deals with providing clean water. It still deals with uh, better sewers, public toilets, street lighting, rubbish collection. But this time, it is not a choice. It is compulsory. And that makes a huge difference to people. Now the government is no more laissez-faire because of germ theory. Now the government is actively trying to prevent disease before it happens. This has a big impact on people's life expectancy. And it's all because, uh, well, arguably, one of the key reasons for this is germ theory, okay? as well as the Great Sting, and as well as the work of John Snow. Okay? Right, moving on to modern medicine then. On to modern medicine. Every single history teacher's least favourite subject, because you could argue this isn't history, this is now. But what it does do is contextualise the journey from 1250 to where we are now. And really, the focus of this is science. Okay, now there is a big change in development. So now you've got the government taking a proactive um, attempt, uh, measures to prevent people from catching disease. You've got government interventions. In this country, very lucky, we've got the NHS, of course, established in 1948, which treat people for free and also try and prevent disease as well, train people properly, scientific approach, technological uh, changes as well, all lead to greater health. So now the focus changes to technology, science, and prevention in modern medicine. That's the key difference from before, because by the 20th century, we know what causes disease. Interesting though, all right, in 1901, start of the 20th century, life expectancy was still only 47. A lot of the infectious diseases, things like cholera and things like that are gone, but new diseases were popping up that we'd recognise more likely, more today. So the diseases that are a problem now. So people are still dying from disease, just different diseases. And that's, of course, mainly due to lifestyle. So things like cancer, a lot of that is linked to uh, lifestyle as well. Of course, uh, other illnesses uh, linked to lifestyle 
um, as well as that one. All right. So even though you've got vaccinations, Public Health Act, preventative measures, okay, um, life expectancy is still only 47 by 1901. All right. Most ways of curing disease are exactly that. They're cures. They're things that happen afterwards. You have got some public health prevention, okay, but most are still to do with cures. All right. Now many scientists were well aware of how microbes cause disease. It led to greater questions. So now they know what caused disease, but hang on, there are more. Some babies are born with illnesses. Some diseases you get when you're born. They can't be created by germs and microbes. So what's going on there? So, you know, the more you discover, the more questions are asked. Okay? So it leads to further questioning. Okay? Which, of course, leads to the work of Crick and Watson and genetics. So a genetic approach to medicine. Okay? So this is 1953. Okay? And they discovered the structure of DNA, which proves beyond doubt that some diseases are hereditary. Of course, they're building on the work of Gregor Mendel around 1901, around that period, or the late 1800s, I think, uh, who did some work with peas and discovered that peas um, carry traits from their parent peas and basically proved that um, some traits are hereditary. Actually, it was Aristotle. Uh, in the ancient world that realised that, you know, you're more likely to look like your parents, and so there must be, going on, there must be something going on there, you, you get something passed. It's just logic, right? But it's actually Crick and Watson that developed this idea and, and discover the structure of DNA. Okay? They discover that it's present in every single human cell and that they pass information from parents to children. Okay? And that becomes the launch pad for other genetic developments. I mean, it's at, think what that's led to, folks. We live in a world now where you can be tested to see whether you have a gene, and they can tell you whether you are likely to develop certain cancers later in life. And they can tell you with an 80% accuracy whether you're going to develop uh, cancers later in life, and they can give you the option of proactive surgery to, to reduce that risk absolutely amazing and that's only due to the work of Crick and Watson in, in 1953 okay they their work as well um, led to the human genome project which was launched in 1990 okay and the aim of that was to further decode and map the human genome which led to developments such as preventative method or, or identifying likelihood of developing certain illnesses like I've just mentioned okay and in fact the example that I was thinking of is, is on the board all right so Angelina Jolie was a very high, high profile case you may you might be too young to know much about her, but she's a Hollywood actress you may know her okay um, here we go once human genome project maps genome um, scientists can start looking into mistakes in DNA in people suffering from hereditary diseases. Okay? So, Angelina Jolie had a test. It turned out that she carried a gene which made, made it 80% likely she was... Uh, made it 
probable, 80% probable she was likely to develop breast cancer. So she took the very difficult decision to have a mastectomy, which is having her breast removed, to prevent herself from getting a worse illness later on. Now, that's only possible because of the Genome Project. Absolutely incredible. Now, don't get me wrong, that is horrific, what she went through, but could well have saved her life. Okay? So, absolutely incredible. There you go. So, that's what it led to. Understanding of G DNA, hereditary diseases, led to further developments. Okay? That's Crick and Watson in 1953. I am going to move on quicker to the final part which is diagnosis, technology, lifestyle, and lung cancer. And I am on to finish on time. Look at this. So here we go. So look, technology is a major factor now in diagnosis. We are far more likely to accurately diagnose precisely what is wrong with people in terms of illness to be able to better treat them. And there are loads of examples. Now look, I'm not going to spend loads of time here because you've probably come across some of this in your daily life. You've probably lived some of this, alright? Uh, if not yourselves, you've probably seen it on TV. You've heard of some of these things. So, you know, endoscopy, small cameras that can enter the body to look deep with inside without having to operate. Again, AO2 without having to operate. Don't just say what an endoscopy is. Say why, what, why it's important. X-rays. Okay, that's 1890s. Röntgen, etc., etc., Okay, they allow you to see the body without cutting it open as well to do with bones, things like that. MRI scanners use magnets and radio waves to create an internal image of the body. Okay, so they can see soft tissue damage that x-rays don't pick up. CT scans as well, something similar. They can diagnose or they can find tumours and other growths within the body so that you can operate with precision to remove that growth without having to do any exploratory surgery. Okay, ultrasound for pregnant women, blood sugar monitoring for diabetics, blood screening. They can take your blood, send it to a lab and screen for all kinds of diseases now using a laboratory, using scientific techniques. Okay, blood tests as well. So all of these ways which we can diagnose illness all as a direct result of technological change. And then, of course, you've got the NHS. Okay which was established in 1848. Now, the NHS doesn't just treat people, although it certainly does. And the important thing to remember about the NHS is that all the services are free. Free! From cradle to the grave. That is revolutionary. Free at the point of use. Okay? And look at all the things that you get out of it. Ambulances, family doctors, medicines... Okay, if you, you don't get your medicines free, you get them subsidised, which means they're cheaper by the government. Blood transfusion, specialists, chiropractors, things like that are going to treat you. Hospital treatment, health centres, vaccinations, okay, maternity, okay, deliver your baby, things like that. They're also medical research and training, doctors and nurses as well, okay. And that links to the Parliament, who fund it through tax. We all pay money into a pot which funds all this. Absolutely amazing. That's prevention and treatment, all in one place. Okay? NHS. Right. 
Folks, I'm just going to smash through this and get to lung cancer. Now, I won't do magic bullets either. Magic bullets were developed in 1890 by Paul Elric, who built upon Robert Koch's work. Robert Koch used dyes to, to see different uh, bacteria. Paul Elric realised that, well, if we're using the dye to see bacteria, why can't we be using chemicals to kill that bacteria instead of just see it? So he created magic bullets. The first one he produced was Salvison 606, which was a cure for um, syphilis. These are chemical cures designed by man, created by man, and, and used to cure, to cure illness, specific illnesses. Okay, building directly on the work of Robert Koch, AO2. Penicillin is an um, antibiotic, okay, so kills infection, which you can take. It was discovered by accident by Alexander Fleming, okay, in 1929 when he wrote about it. All right, when he left a petri dish open when he went on holiday and a piece of um, a spore of, um, remember your words, Miss Sutton, a spore of mould came in through the window and landed, so it's mould penicillin, okay? So he realised from that that it had potential properties to kill bacteria. He couldn't develop it himself. So Florian Chain took on his work, they got government funding, and they turned it into a drug, okay, from 1838. Uh, by the Second World War, that led to the American government giving more money for the development of this. All right, by the, after the Second World War, it was used for public use. So penicillin kills bacteria. You've probably used it. You've probably had antibiotics. That all starts here. Okay, moving on to... Lung cancer then. Now, lung cancer is a specific case study for modern medicine. You would have been given it for homework, so I'm going to go through it very quickly here. The reason we look at lung cancer specifically is because it's interesting from a modern medicine point of view. Because it highlights some of the problems and challenges of modern medicine. Because so far, we've been talking about modern medicine in a positive way. But there are still some challenges. So here we go. On the board, I put a poster there. Absolutely disgusting. It shows some kind of tumour, some thick black tar and blood coming from the end of a cigarette. You've all seen images like that. And the reason you've all seen images like that is because the government is actively trying to prevent you from smoking. Okay? Through changing behaviour. It's another strategy that's very much born of the 20th century. This is part of modern medicine. Okay? Before diagnosing lung cancer was very difficult. They would have used x-rays, but these weren't always clear, and sometimes they would have misdiagnosed, diagnosed the wrong illness. Now we use CT scans to accurately see if you have any tumours or growths within your lungs. Um, the problem with lung cancer, unlike other forms of lung cancers, is that... Just like other cancers, when it's discovered, it's already a thing. It's already advanced within the body. One reason why cancer is so evil as a disease. Now, with some forms of cancer, you get a national screening program. That means that's a preventative measure. So, gents, when you're much older, you will be screened regularly for prostate cancer. You'll go to a doctor. The doctor will physically check you and make sure that you don't have prostate cancer. Okay? Women... 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to go into how that's done. That's not that. Women, you have... Stay with me. Women, you have a similar thing. You, you get tested for cervical can cancer and you get tested for breast can uh, cancer. Now, the reason for that is... You don't have to worry about it for many years, don't worry. But the reason for that is so they can catch it early and put treatment in place before it gets to the advanced stage and really begins to hurt you terribly. The problem with lung cancer is there's no advanced screening. And that's because of the nature of it. It develops within the body, within the lungs. Now, the only way to detect that is using a CT scanner, which uses radio waves. They don't want to, uh, to um, shoot people with radio waves if they don't have to. Okay? So they can't do that with lung cancer. Now, if lung cancer is caught early, they can operate it. Lung cancer manifests itself as tumours, abnormalities within cells, and they can literally cut it out. Okay? That's what they do. What an amazing world we live in. It is possible to actually transfer lungs as well. So they can transplant lungs from an old patient. That's a possibility. But that is a major undertaking. Okay? And there are ethical considerations as well. I'm not going to go into it, but if somebody harms themselves through lifestyle, i.e. smoking, is it correct that they get an extremely difficult, extremely expensive procedure when that pair of lungs could go to someone else? I'm not going to get into that, but there are ethical considerations there. Okay? There are other ways of um, treating it as well. Radiotherapy. Radiotherapy, a concentrated wave shot at a tumour to shrink it. Chemotherapy of drugs, which are taken to um, shrink tumours as well. I should mention as well, another form of radiotherapy is a catheter. Catheter is where they put a little almost tube full of radioactive material inside you to try and shrink the tumours that way. The problem here, though, is that some of these treatments are horrible. And they're almost as bad as the disease itself. So what does the government do? It tries to prevent you from smoking in the first place. This is different. This is what sets modern medicine apart. Preventative measures, not just in terms of like sewers and things like that, like the 1875 Public Health Act. Now the government is trying to actively change behaviour. And it does that in two ways. Changing behaviour or influencing it. So changing it, then making it more difficult for you to smoke. We now know that smoking is directly linked to cancer, so they're making it more difficult. So in 2007, and it's worth making a note of these because this is a case study, and it hasn't been on the exam yet, so it could well appear this year. 2007, smoking is banned in all public places. 2015, that ban is extended to cars carrying children. 2007 as well, the legal age for buying tobacco is raised from 16 to 18. Okay? And there is ever-increasing taxation. They're getting more and more expensive to stop people from buying them. They can also influence behaviour. So advertising campaigns in an attempt to prevent you from smoking. Tobacco advertising is banned in 1965 in some places and in 2005 completely banned. And in 2012, tobacco products have to be hidden. That's why when you go to the corner shop, they're behind that screen. That happened in 2012. Okay, so all of those ways are to prevent you from smoking. You can think of other campaigns as well, outside of lung cancer. Things like the Change for Life campaign, Stoptober, 
Okay, uh, dry January. All of these are attempts to change lifestyle that is directly linked to disease. Ladies and gentlemen, that is medicine 1250 to modern day. I am here for five, I'm here for an hour if you need me. Other than that, thank you very much. Best of luck on Monday.